Gagan and you're listening to a special episode of the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Crawford & Company. One of life's great paradoxes is that when something is so core to everything that you do that you can't imagine being able to do your job without it, that's often when you take it a little for granted. And I think that's what the insurance industry is guilty of when we think of loss adjusters and other trusted third-party claims professionals. That's why I'm delighted I was able to have such an in-depth and probing conversation with Andrew Bart, CEO of International Operations at Crawford & Company. It's clear after our meeting that while many in the sector will regard Crawford's services as a given and a constant, Crawford itself does anything but. This may be a market-leading business with a very strong position globally, but it's constantly challenging reinventing and disrupting itself as the world develops. For instance, how does an adjuster scale up and scale down flexibly in the face of ever more frequent, severe and global loss events? What about when these events occur simultaneously at different points in the world? How does an adjuster rise to the challenge of new developments like parametric insurance, the huge increase in intangible assets and social phenomena like the gig economy? And how about resurgent inflation and the megatrend of ESG and the transition to net zero, which is going to change fundamentally how insurers and their customers deal with all claims in the future? Well, the answers are all here, and they involve a huge amount of technology and data and an enormous amount of collaboration, as well as a subtle shift in focus from hindsight and learning historical lessons to foresight, prediction, prevention and prescriptive actions. You may not have thought of all these things, but I can assure you that Andrew has very deeply. The result is a fascinating podcast that will give you a clear idea of what the third-party claims professionals of the future are going to look like. And I think that after this, you won't take loss of justice for granted ever again. Enjoy the podcast. Andrew Bart, welcome to The Voice of Insurance. Mark, thank you for having me. Really looking forward to the conversation today. Oh, so am I. I can't believe there are that many listeners out there that don't know of Crawford, but give us a very quick overview of Crawford and company, and then tell us about yourself and what you do within Crawford. What's your role? Thank you. So Crawford and Company is a company that's headquartered in Atlanta, Georgia, USA. People often think of us as a loss-adjusting business. We're more than that. I like to think of us as a provider of outsourced claim services. So loss-adjusting, which people are very familiar with, Broadspire, which is our third-party administration business. And then we have Platforms, which is Contractor Connection, which is a managed contractor business, also incorporates a lot of our catastrophe response, especially in the USA, and some of our digital solutions. So three core businesses, 9,000 plus people worldwide. So many, many countries, up to 70 countries and territories, lots of scale, very broad canvas that we work in. And what's your role within the business? So my role is a fantastic job. I think I have the best job in the company. I'm the chief executive of international operations. So it's Latin America, UK, Ireland, Europe, Asia, and Australia. So it's about 30% of our revenue worldwide, and that covers all product lines in all locations. So I guess most people would call that rest of the world. So it's everything apart from North America? Absolutely. The businesses are not uniform. We recognize that markets are different structures are different, legal requirements are different. So part of a challenge in running that business is how do we harmonise the best bits of it, but recognise that we need to adapt the business to particular markets. Getting to the day job, it seems to be absolutely irrefutable, particularly looking when you're looking at insurance and reinsurance results of the last five to six years. No one can really deny 
we've been in an elevated period of both natural and man-made catastrophes and the severity and frequency of all sorts of events seem to be increasing. As a loss adjuster, that must be quite a challenge. Obviously, it sounds good for business, but at the same time, a hell of a challenge. On one hand, I guess it's a case of an ill wind blows no good, but it's just extraordinarily challenging and becoming more so. And I think back to 20-odd years ago when we started to see more frequent events and we would talk about the one-in-a-hundred-year storm or the one-in-a-hundred-year fire. It seems to happen about every second Tuesday now. Yes. And I'm not being flippant about it, but the whole market has changed and therefore the need to resource in a different way has changed. COVID also changed the dynamic. We had to work out how to work in a more flexible way to be able to work remotely. So there's been a lot of catalyst for change. But if I look at what's happening now in Turkey and Syria, of course, not to be forgotten, we have a humanitarian disaster. We have an insurance disaster. We look at what happened late last year in the USA. Flooding in Australia was absolutely unprecedented last year. So there are just so many events worldwide. And the challenge is... How do we respond to simultaneous events? How do we respond to events in locations which are difficult to access? So it's a combination of people, technology, flexible resourcing. So we've really had to re-engineer our business. I suppose one of the funny things we talk about, flexible working, I suppose at least one thing we do know that people in your profession have been pioneering flexible working forever because, of course, you, you literally are remote because you're out in a remote place looking at a burnt out building or something or, or the wreck of something or doing your job, obviously in the classic loss adjusting role, or you're looking how to repair something or you got your Wellington boots out of the back of the car in standing in the field. Perhaps you don't do quite as much of that as you used to. So that challenge... How do you respond to that? Is it all about having to work a bit smarter? Because I presume from a business perspective, it must be terrible if you ramp up staff to deal with an expected new frequency of events. And instead of materializing in a regular pattern, of course, Murphy's Law being what it is, they'll all end up manifesting simultaneously. But how do you sort of build up your bench, but at the same time, keep them all busy so that they're productive rather than having them twiddling rather expensive thumbs? Well, firstly, we've certainly become much better about the way in which we flex our workforce. And we have a business, We Go Look, which utilizes the gig economy. But that's a model that we run a lot in the USA, but we run versions of it elsewhere in the world. And a German and business... That's effectively which is an simply, online platform where members of the public can volunteer to become effective scouts for Crawford and be sent out to go and verify things that have happened and go and take a picture of yeah, something. Yeah, simple things like that. Obviously, we make sure that we control quality. Quality assurance is absolutely important for us and important it's for our clients. Good, outstanding members of the community, one Yeah, that, well, absolutely. And presumably some of them are retired claims professionals. Retired claims professionals, people with other skills. I often say that it's easier to teach someone some basic insurance skills than it is to teach them how to be an engineer, how to be a lawyer, how to have specific professional skills. So it's how we harness those capabilities and bring it together. The other thing we use is we're making much more use of digital technology, so remote capture, self-serve. So it's harnessing all of those things. But at the core of what we do is our technical capability. And we pride ourselves on the depth of our technical capability. But technology is an enabler, but it doesn't replace everything we do. But we just have to be more flexible. Scaling up and down is a real challenge. We're seeing that in a couple of markets at the moment where the long-range forecasts are for weather-driven events to occur, and when I say long-range, over the next three to seven months. So we can't scale back down to nothing. 
but we have to be able to make it financially viable. We've got pretty good at that, but we're always learning. We learn from every event. After every major event, we have a debrief. What could we have done better? What did we get right? What did we get wrong? We talk to our clients. We want to get their perspective, but we're always learning. Look, one thing I know, having been in the industry for over 35 years, it's a journey of continuous learning. Obviously, we had that very big event last year at Hurricane Ian. What are the lessons from that? Often is it just relearning the same old lessons that everyone's forgotten again? (laughs) Well, with Ian, things happen in real time because you're trying to track where is it going to hit, which locations are going to be affected, how do we move resources around. But I think Ian was the latest in a long line of events where we realise it's the ability to scale up very quickly. People want to be seen as quickly as possible. We have to manage the safety of our people. We have to make sure that we're creating order as quickly as possible. But I think the thing that we've really got so much better at is the way in which we triage claims. So we have a facility called Digital Desk, and that really is a fantastic facility for triaging claims, making sure we apply the right resource to the claim as quickly as possible. So in an environment where resources are scarce, access is difficult, making sure we utilise those resources as efficiently as possible is absolutely paramount. So I think Ian demonstrated to us that we're on the right path. Do you use some satellite images and that kind of thing? Absolutely. So drone, satellite imaging, had a meeting with a special envoy to the United Nations recently, and he's put me in touch with a tech provider that is producing an absolutely revolutionary way of utilising satellite imagery. It cuts through clouds. So it's a combination of things. There's not one solution that we'll use, but it's the way in which we combine resources. Your job is really to aggregate all that fantastic amount of intelligence. Of course, some's coming from the insured, some's coming from the insurer and the reinsurer, and everyone's chipping in, I presume, and you're getting information from all angles and, of course, your own people on the ground. But you've got to have an efficient platform to ingest all that information and then make a battle plan that makes sense out of it. It's harmonising. And events are of a different nature, but you just spoke about intelligence, Mark, and that's a neat segue to data. And as an industry, we have an extraordinary amount of data. People know that we have to use it better, and it's almost the holy grail, but it's what do we do with it? How do we pull it together? What insights will it provide us? What can we automate? What can we predict? We get into predictive analytics where we look to predict what will happen and then you migrate to prescriptive analytics where you're trying to make things happen and control outcomes. So there's a lot of opportunity. Crawford is investing heavily in the development of our data capability. We've put all of our information that we are able to get together legally and obviously control about data is important. But to put that into a data lake in unstructured form, what can we pull out of that? So I've just come from a meeting with our data team to look at some opportunities. So incredibly important. Certainly when I look at your website these days, technology is front and centre there, even to the extent of offering technological services to third parties as well, because obviously you must have invested very heavily over a long period, and now you can actually even sell that service to other people. Yep, we absolutely do. And I'll give you a live example at the moment. In the UK at the moment, one of our team leaders has done a fantastic job of collaborating with an external party to develop a solution to settle a particular class of claims. Now, we've just run a pilot, but essentially what we're doing is that for this very specific class of business, claims took on average 49 days to settle. We can now settle them in three and a half minutes with the self-serve function. That's just been 
a phenomenal piece of work. Like, and I sat with the team. And has that still got human intervention? We do quality assurance from a human intervention perspective, but really the fantastic thing is policyholder can self-serve. We've tested it with a data set that we didn't choose, was simply given to us, but we've reduced the average cost of claim. As I say, these claims took an average of 49 days to settle. It was three and a half minutes per claim and accuracy was absolutely phenomenal. Now, that is an example. It's an extreme example, but it's indicative of the opportunity to, to pursue those sort of solutions. You're right, we do provide some solutions as a technology service. The challenge for a company like Crawford, which is sizable, but we're not massive, is that we have to choose where do we spend from the point of view of building, do we buy, do we partner, is it a combination of things? So we work with various external parties, but we'll build our own solutions sometimes. But things are changing all the time, and you don't have to look very far into the insure tech world to yeah. see there are not many unicorns, you know, the, the startups that become a billion-dollar enterprise. So we have to place our bets wisely. Even the big insurers, the big carriers, don't have unlimited bandwidth, and they tend to partner as well. So it's a great opportunity. So you're building some of your own, but when you can see there's something better out there, you can partner with them, and it's actually fairly agnostic about it because you've got a big job to do. You just want to get it done the best possible way. Well, that's right. And as I said, I've just been in a meeting with the data team and some of the IT team, and I said, look, what I'm interested in is, firstly, I want to see constant progress. So our people need to see that we're doing things that make their lives and jobs better. Our customers want to see that, the end users, the claimants. So it's all about producing a better claim experience. Speed of settlements is really important now. It's always been important. How do we communicate? How do we utilize technology efficiently? Things like the ability to scope a building. So a facility hover where we can take, I think it's six to eight pictures and render a 3D drawing of a house accurate to within millimetres. So previously that would have taken someone a long time to produce manually and not to the same degree of accuracy. So that's the sort of thing that enhances cap response, day-to-day -day response, but we're having to spend more time doing other things. So I'm really interested in the human part of the business and making sure that we use people's time and people are expensive and we want people to have satisfying careers and feel they're making a difference. I suppose, and of course, those customers, obviously the insurance customer of the insurance company that you're instructed by, and also that insurance company as well, they're all people too. So you've got to be keeping them happy, communicating to all of them, and obviously asking for information from one end and communicating it back to the others and adding your own value as well when you're adding your opinions. We've just used the word communicate several times. And claim management, claim settlement is all about communication. It's about the management of expectations. And Speed of settlement is important. There's been a consulting study which shows the more times a claim is touched, the more people who touch a claim, you get a regression in customer satisfaction. And we have to find ways to minimise touch points, to minimise the number of people who handle the claim, and to make sure we settle claims faster. Like speed is of the essence. So is getting it right. Yeah. As a former broker, I mean, the last thing you ever wanted to do was have to keep going back to the client and asking again, because it's like, well, why didn't you ask me all these questions before? So I didn't think of those questions. Seven steps up the chain, someone else asked some new questions. I'm sorry, we're going to have to come back down again and ask you. Repetition is frustrating. And we all have the experience of 
the call line. I've already had this discussion. Yeah, you've already you given know. them your postcode 15 yeah, times and they right. said your you, name you, and your mother's name. You, you know name. who I am. I had this discussion <laughs> yesterday. So we're trying to minimise that. We're not perfect. It's a journey for us. It's a journey for the industry. But I really feel we're starting to make significant progress. Obviously, it's such an interconnected world and we wouldn't have had a global claims company 50 years ago. We'd have had 193 different nations, each probably having their own national champion. But of course, since then, the world has actually globalised. And I presume Crawford & Co, you're in every major territory in the world. But how often do you find that you're doing things on a global kind of basis? The way that ever since the Thai floods of the early 2010s, and now we're seeing with this post-COVID environment, we're, talking, we're seeing supply chain issues hitting the headlines and shortages in supermarkets and all sorts of things. But if it wasn't rammed home to us before, it certainly is now that everyone knows that this is a globally interconnected world. And obviously, we know that insurance claims, particularly after those Thai floods, we realized how interconnected a lot of the manufacturing supply chain is and how vulnerable it would be just to one river in Thailand that we were not aware of until it flooded, how bad that would be. How often do you find these days that you really are being genuinely global or how often is it just a single territory? Well, look, most things are single territory. Most things are in country. Lots of purchasing decisions are made in country. But there is an absolute benefit to our global reach, our scale, just sheer size of the business. And that gives us the ability to, I think, scale up when really big events occur. But if I think back in the COVID environment, there was a particular program that required us to have resources in 92 countries, some of which were the poorest locations in the world. I won't go into the details of what the program was, but that was a real challenge. And there was a humanitarian benefit attached to that. It was important that we were able to scale up and it really required a lot of very innovative thinking, uh, the use of technology. And I thought we did an absolutely phenomenal job in responding to that. For example, in Australia, the floods which have occurred last year, yeah. we've brought people in from almost every continent to assist with that. So that's just been a phenomenal response. Now, we've also used technology in dealing with that, but you know, we have a team from Canada that has been to most parts of the world. So that ability to work across borders is really, really important. So it's having that global bench that you can yeah. suddenly pull different spare parts yeah. from different places. Yeah. And we've also got a situation in real time we're dealing with a product liability claim at the moment. Now, it is really complex. It's highly sensitive, but it's in probably 30 countries. And look, it requires a combination of technology. There is a field force required. We have to physically inspect things. Of course, there's 30 different jurisdictions with different uh, laws. It's, and It's really, really complex. And, and I think we've done an absolutely spectacular job in responding to what is a really difficult situation. And insurers delighted with it, the policyholders delighted with it, and I think we've done a superb job. When we look at these supply chain crises we seem to be constantly running into, again, looking at that predictive and that sort of almost preventative side of what you do, we're getting any further down the track on trying to predict some of these vulnerabilities and try and avoid them, or at least build in redundancies and have alternative suppliers Going back to that Thai floods, I do remember writing an interesting story about it was the sort of people who make the rubber bands that are the drive shafts for every printer in the world. There were maybe 20 major printer manufacturers. Turns out they all used the same rubber band. And then, you know, it took a while to get that capacity up and running somewhere else in the world that wasn't flooded to build the rubber bands. And if we could have predicted that at some point in the future, of course, with something like Florida, everyone knows where the houses are in Florida and everyone can put that into a PML and say, wow, that is a pinch point in the world that we know that we've got to be ready for that as an insurance industry. Do you think you've got a role there to help sort of unpick some of these things before they get too knotted up? 
It's a huge challenge because it's almost about absolutely everything. Well, we certainly learn from claims experiences and what's occurred, but that's, of course, hindsight, but it helps us to future-proof. But if I look at recent history, we went to a world where the approach was it's a global world, you should buy from everywhere, we buy where it's cheap, we buy where we can get scale, a market that is cheap one minute becomes expensive the next because the labour-saving opportunity diminishes. But now in the current geopolitical environment, it's more complicated. It's reversed because people realise you need to have in-country capability. I mean, just last night there's an announcement that what was British Steel is closing down part of its plants in the UK. And then we talk about, well, what's the impact of that on the ability to supply steel locally? What should you build in-house So I think what we're going to see, and we're already seeing it, is a big, big focus on intangible risks. So reputation, supply chain, we're seeing big blowouts in claim costs and in settlement times because of the inability to source equipment from original equipment manufacturers. We're currently dealing with a very large claim where it's likely the policy limits are going to be blown and blown quite quickly because there's just no ability to get parts. So they've got three production lines. They're currently running two, seven days a week, 24 hours a day. So the increased cost of working is just phenomenal. And it doesn't look like we'll get the parts anytime soon. The last couple of years, anyone who's tried to buy a car understands the challenges associated with the semiconductor issue. Now, there's been fire in one location. There was a typhoon which impacted another. And you spoke before about the rubber band issue. It's the concentration of a supply chain. But the ramifications from the point of view of supplying semiconductors and the inability to make cars or many other things is just phenomenal. So we're going to have to reimagine the way in which we run supply chains. Yeah, and it's going to be interesting. Someone in the claims management profession, when I go to every insurance conference, we talk about the huge role that intangibles are now playing. Whereas 50 years ago, the value of the S&P 500, the balance sheets were mostly tangible assets you could see. It's got an oil refinery, it's got a factory over here, it's got stuff that you can go and touch. And then now, of course, what's making up the S&P 500 is you know, Apple, and it's a load of intangible product designs and intellectual property. As someone in that claims services profession, presumably that is a challenge to you, you're going to have to rise to, to how do you adjust an intellectual property loss and That's got to be something that you must have been thinking about for a long time, as particularly as those values just get higher and higher. Well, just dealing with intangible risks generally is a challenge. I mean, who thought about a cyber claim until whether it's seven years, 10 years ago? And how do you underwrite that? How do you deal with that? But even if I look back on, we went into COVID, we immediately saw an increase in the number of cyber claims, the level of sophistication of the cyber claims and the cyber attacks increased. The size of the ransom claims increased dramatically. We've seen a big escalation in the first party claims, the business interruption losses associated with cyber claims. And then it goes through particular sectors. We had to run. So these are really big parts of your business that you've been investing in very heavily, I presume. Yeah, we're a reasonable size provider in the cyber sector. It's often lawyer led, but certainly the business interruption side of that business is something that we've been growing in got a global cyber practice uh, led by Paul Handy, who does a superb job in working in that sector. So we see it as a need, an opportunity, but even that is going through an evolution at the moment as the market evaluates how much risk does it want to assume, what should deductibles be, what limits of liability should be, is it ethical to pay ransom 
So there's a whole raft of things that are emerging. Parametric insurance is an interesting Absolutely, trend. Absolutely, yeah. So, Presumably with parametric, you know, that's something where it's almost the product's actually been designed to sort of put you out of a job. Absolutely. Because I don't think it ever will, by the way. But that's a challenge, I presume. You might have said, well, let's rather than beat them, let's join them, and, and we should be designing some of these parametric triggers ourselves, right? That's just part of a reality of dealing with an evolving world and an evolving industry. And we're constantly having to look at the way in which we shape our services. And that's why we don't want to be a single dimensional company or business. And that's why we want to have a multifaceted revenue stream because things come, things go. There are things that are constants, as you've said. But I think, quite frankly, parametric insurance makes an enormous amount of sense in some sectors. Difficult on the consumer end of things, I think it's very must be difficult to explain to sell to someone if you've got a deductible based around how high the water comes up in your house. People can understand it, but they might not understand the difference between 10 centimetres and 15 might be a factor of an exponential difference in the probability. And then you could think you could be in quite a bad mis-selling place at that point if you're the broker on that. I think that is fraught with danger. But if you're a sophisticated corporate and you know that there's a propensity for a particular peril to occur yeah. in a particular location, you're willing to assume some risk yourself. And just like all of these things, they'll evolve. Look, I've seen some very good outcomes on parametric claims. But yeah. presumably, as a trusted third party, you should be right in the centre of all of that. You should be almost implementing those things on behalf of because everyone can accept your opinion as being really valid. Everyone knows you haven't got an access yeah. to go. You're quite right. The nature of parametric insurance is such that it does impact us but we just have to accept and embrace the opportunity for change because sometimes the old ways of doing things are not appropriate and there is an opportunity to create more certainty. I spoke about speed of settlement earlier in our conversation. So it's a good thing in some areas, but it's not for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. I suppose the great promise of parametric is that you can have automatic settlement. Correct. So like this thing happens, bang, here's the money in your bank account. Yeah, if X happens, we pay Y. These are the parameters and you do create some certainty, but you've just got to make sure that up front you've got the data right, you've got the premium right, the assumption of risk is appropriate and people are informed. But you're dealing with sophisticated yeah. corporates there. I presume you've got to go through those, what are the potential pitfalls of automatic of claims? Yeah. Of course, yeah. And the pieces I've seen have been good. So you don't want automatic rejection of a claim out of hand as well, because well, that could be quite unsatisfying. To, it's lovely to have your claim paid in three seconds, but then to have it rejected in three seconds, it's like, that's going to drive you slightly mad, isn't it? I don't profess to be an expert in parametric <laughs> insurance, but it, it's certainly not something I see as a fundamental threat to our sector. It's complementary, isn't it? But, uh, I see it as complementary, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, I would agree with you. I wouldn't see it replacing traditional insurance for the average man in the street uh, generally. Absolutely not. For some corporates, it's got a utility. Yes, and you mentioned before about this fantastic WeGoLook platform that you've built, and obviously with perhaps different names in different territories. But you've also expanded into different services as well. Again, things like legal services. I think people come into witness documents, that kind of thing. Yeah, all recoveries, fraud, some advisory work. And it's complementary in some markets. One of the opportunities is to provide a comprehensive suite of services now. The way I see what Crawford does is that we provide many services. We've got an environmental service, we've got a cyber service, we've got forensic accounting, we have construction, we have traditional adjusting, we have TPA, third-party administration, contractor connection. But what we encourage is that clients can bundle services equally, they can unbundle services 
and it's just horses for courses in different markets. So some markets, we are almost a single service market because the market is small or the market so is very specific. It's someone's claims department. Yeah, that's yeah. right. But people and clients will bundle or unbundle services. But if there's an opportunity to provide an end-to-end solution, we think that's got a utility from the point of view of cost, customer experience, so it's seamless. So we think that there's a lot to be said for that. But some clients want to unbundle the service. So some clients want to buy forensic accounting services, some don't. We're completely okay with that. And we're a provider of services. Uh, We're not a prescriber of services. And it's important that we listen to the clients, we listen to the market, we see the trends, we see commercial opportunities, and we adapt the business according to the time, to the location and the market. Any other lines you might be getting into? Certainly we see an opportunity to look at pre-loss services. So we're getting into the market of evaluating risk. So that's an opportunity. Again, we'll be selective about where we play, make sure that it's complementary to our client services, what we're doing. We'll look at where we have the right amount of skill sets. Certainly we're building out our environmental capability. We see that as an opportunity. The development of specialist services. So we'd like to enhance certainly our construction capability. We see that as an opportunity. So we'll probably look at which geographic markets we enter, where we can build scale. So we're constantly evaluating the depth of our services, what are adjacencies. So we do see an opportunity to build out adjacencies. Now, we're mindful of conflict, but forensic engineering, we see as a real opportunity. We've got a very successful business in Canada. We've extended that to USA, we're starting to explore that area in other markets. So we don't see it as a conflict, we see it as complementary. I suppose if you've got a fantastic global platform, then you, know, you can put all sorts of things on there that if they make sense and that they are adjacent to what you're already doing. That's right. There are adjacencies. And if you think about claims, there are lots of components of medium to large claims. And what we look at is where can we add value where can we genuinely have the right skill sets? But what we're very mindful of is that it's got to be good. It's got to be really good. So we won't play unless we can do it well. We won't play unless we can add value. And we want to ensure that it complements the existing business and the needs of our clients. That we go look platform, how far do you think you could take that? Do you think that will be the way that people, most people interact with claim services in the future? Certainly, I, th- I think... If you look at the way digital capability is progressing and the ability to self-serve, one would have to expect that type of service or variations of it will extend. But we have to make sure we have the right technical capability because ultimately we've got to make sure the policy is doing what it's contracted with the customers to do, that we protect the interest of the customer, that we're fair, So technical capability will be really important. So I believe that that sort of service, that gig economy service, will be complementary, not primary. Obviously, we're in quite an inflationary environment. Is that causing lots of headaches? Are you uncovering underinsurance more regularly than you would like to? So that that is one of the most topical things in the market at the moment. And it's a real challenge for the industry. Certainly, we've been in a period of hyperinflation. We are starting to show some signs of coming out of the other side of that. But look, inflation is a challenge for us. What's our biggest cost, people? We've got a cost of living crisis. We've got a supply chain issue. 
COVID has changed the way in which people work. Some people have made decisions to exit the workforce. So we've got almost a perfect storm of inflation, labour shortage, and then turning to the impact on claims. Earlier in the conversation, we spoke about supply chain challenges. Claims take longer to settle. They get more expensive with time. And then for the insurers, and I had a very detailed conversation with a global head of a major insurer recently, is the issue of are you getting the appropriate premium? It follows that if we're in a high inflation environment and we're seeing escalation in building costs, we need to review declared limits. But that just doesn't apply to the tangible risk, like the cost of the building. But if it's going to take two years to rebuild a factory, it follows that the business interruption risk is going to increase. So you've got to make sure that we're providing protection for policyholders on that front. So insurers are really concerned about making sure that risk is priced appropriately. I'm not an underwriter, so, but it's patently obvious that we need to look at the adequacy of declared values, both for the tangible and the intangible risk. Is that something you'd been looking at as well, looking at valuations? There's a lot of smart ways of using technology to improve the speed and accuracy of valuations. Yeah, absolutely. So certainly valuation is an area that we would entertain. We just need to make sure that we're not presented with a conflict. But I think we're in a world now where many providers undertake multidisciplinary services. If you look at the consulting companies, if you look back to the accounting firms, the mainstay of the business was audit and basic accounting services. That's almost become secondary to the point where one or two may divest their audit practices because they're more interested in providing other services. We are a provider of services. We're a service company. We're also a technology business in some sectors. We're a people business. So I think it is sensible to find a solution for the problem not a problem for the yeah, solution. So we need to be flexible. We need to build a sustainable I don't know about you. If, you. if you value that building, you know that building inside and out already, you're going to be able to work out what was wrong with it. Yeah. As I say, I believe there is a solution for that. There's a benefit to that. And you're right, some pre-loss knowledge is beneficial. Look, we do pre-loss planning with some corporates and we don't see it as a conflict. And in fact, it's loss prevention. And there's a very interesting article recently in one of the major trade magazines about insurance needs to think about what its role is because is insurance just there to pay claims or should it be more of a consulting business where it's about loss prevention, it's about providing a more holistic solution. Particularly now when there's an internet of things, there are thousands of potential new data points. You can measure the relative humidity and temperature of virtually anything of, I don't know, a turbine, and you can get so many data points about it. And now you just need to analyze that stuff and say, well, how do we minimize outages in this turbine? Well, it turns out that you're starting up too cold, why don't you start up a bit warmer, or it's too humid, or it's too dry, or whatever. Again, you're going to need professionals, probably like yourselves, to analyse that data and actually give the advice and stop the loss from happening in the first place. Or just tell them, say, by the way, your motor's running too hot at the moment, turn it down. Or in the way that Rolls-Royce is actually live streaming all its engine's performance to itself to work out what might go wrong with them, I think. Absolutely. And the, the Internet of Things is just exploded and will continue to do so. But it, it gets down to things as basic as leak detection systems in refrigerators in home environments. Some of those such simple things that are not expensive are going to save the most amount of money for the least amount of outlay, aren't That's they? That's right. And again, you might think, well, this is the sort of thing that minimises claims, therefore I'd be concerned about it. I'm not, because we've got a collective responsibility 
to make sure things are more sustainable and loss prevention is important. Well, the world does get better over time. Of course. You know, the fire rate is not as bad as it used to be when the Great Fire of London took place only a few yards away from here. And obviously aviation's loss records got better and better and better because the planes are better and well, well, that's pilots right. are better. Several times during this conversation, we've spoken about intangibles. Now, if you go back 30 years ago, people had CDs, they had video players, they had record collections, household burglaries, what got stolen. Well, I've only got a laptop now. Yeah. And, and at some point, it'll probably just disappear into the ether well, as well. <laughs> I can travel for a few days with my iPad. I was in Amsterdam last week. I didn't have my main computer. iPad, iPhone, really, but try losing your phone oh, yeah. for a few hours. <laughs> You've lost your right arm. But I think the nature of risk has changed and what matters to us has changed. So the world's a smaller place. We've spoken several times in this conversation about data, the use of data. It's a great opportunity. One thing we haven't spoken about yet, and you mentioned the word environmental earlier on, since I started this podcast three years ago, the three-letter acronym that has really surfaced the most has been ESG. And we're on this transition to net zero. How are you starting to feel that in your world? When you particularly look at things like there is a loss, and there is a loss in something that could be carbon heavy, for example, can you see a future where your report says, well, you can replace this oil-fired or gas-fired thing over here with another one, but that's going to be an ESG score of 112. Why don't you just replace it with a heat pump and it'll be 42? But of course, that's going to be more expensive, but that's going to be cheaper in the long run because it's going to improve your ESG score. Are you sort of beginning to factor some of those things in where perhaps repair might also be more highly priced than replacement because, of course, all the carbon involved in getting a new machine and putting it in. Obviously, it's nice and easy to get a new machine and put it in, but you might be being forced by the authorities, the society might well rather that you actually repaired the thing rather than throwing it away. It's absolutely prevalent for us at the moment. And presumably it's only going to get more. Uh, of course. Well, firstly, in some of the tenders we're doing at the moment, we have to evidence what our ESG capability is. What are our policies? How do we invest in it? What do we do to make travel more sustainable? What are the things we're doing from a practical perspective? Now, we don't make things. I mean, we're a people business, but there are things you we can do. You fly around the world we, an awful we, lot. Yeah, and if I look at myself, I'm the head of international. Almost no one flies more than me, but <laughs> it's a bit hard to sit at your desk in London and never go anywhere. So I'm in Dubai next week, Amsterdam last week, the States the week before. But I'm trying to be more responsible about what I do and travel more efficiently, whether it's trains uh, and certainly covid Teams, Zoom, call it what you will. That's a game changer. Now, do I see people lapsing back into wanting to travel again and travel a lot and travel for no good reason? Absolutely. And we need to stop that. Turning to the claim side of things, I saw a policy not all that long ago where it had a clause written into it, giving the policyholder the opportunity to reinstate. It was called a green clause and it really was very powerful. And Essentially, even if it cost more, they had an option to reinstate in a different form. You also touched on regulations. I mean, it just won't simply be permissible to reinstate some assets, and the cost of reinstatement will be far more to comply with the regulations. Now, that's not really very different to what's been occurring for a long time, where if there's a hurricane and your place was not code compliant, when you rebuild it, you're going to build it. So if it's co-compliant, it's going to cost a lot more. 
So it's really an evolution of that sort of thing. It's a sort of form of betterment, and, and, and again, it can be dealt with, I suppose, yeah. as long as the premium's there. There's no such thing as a bad risk, only a bad rate. So I think you'll see more and more of that, Mark, and so we should. And we've just been involved in a very large claim, excess of 100 million euros, where part of the settlement was predicated on the basis that the policyholder didn't want to reinstate because the technology was no longer relevant, it wasn't appropriate, it wasn't environmentally friendly, and we were able to get a deal together. You'll see lots of that, I think. So it's just only going to be more and more and more. I think when we're settling matters, I mean, I've been a loss adjuster for a long time, been in management for some time now, but it's about getting to settlements, which are pragmatic. I mean, the policy is there, it's a very important framework, but having appropriate commercial settlements, which are fair, and produce a good outcome that's good for everyone. Well, that's a good place to begin winding up, I think. But on that ESG, are you going to be really proactive? Will you start having perhaps some sort of Crawford scoring system or something that comes with your report? Not only will we, we are, and we have to be, because we'll be scored, but also we are a responsible corporate. So we will do the right thing. Rohit Verma, who I report to, who's the global chief executive, is absolutely committed to ensuring that we do have appropriate ESG policies, but not just policies, practices. Words on a page are one thing, but walking the walk is really a core differentiator, and we are absolutely committed to doing that. Well, a core of your business is finding out what went wrong and working out how to fix it, yep. and then obviously telling how much it's going to cost. As well. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, and, and that's right. We do seek to understand what went wrong, why, and what can we do about it, because an important part of what we do is learning from the past. And that's what our clients want to do as well. I think that's a really good way of summing up what you do. And it's been a real pleasure talking to you, Andrew, because you forget what a huge multifaceted business you have that's completely global. And you're right. I think you do have one of the most interesting jobs in the world. So it's been fantastic talking to you. Mark, thank you for having me. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this program. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. <laughs>